Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the program, you can always contact me on any of the contact links via email or Twitter or Facebook or even phone that's found in the description of this show. Uh, There's a hotline number as well, 303-832-0217, where you can call and uh, tell me anything you want. (laughs) And we can put it here on the uh, on the program uh, coming up today I'm gonna speak with uh, Ben Schmidt and Ben is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Roadbotics now they've partnered with the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation to look at the condition of roads in 20 major US cities and, and then rank them from 1 to 20 now the interesting part of this study more than just the data is the new way they've collected the data They used smartphone cameras that were mounted on a windshield, almost like a dash cam would be, and then they used artificial intelligence to analyze all these pictures they were taking of roadways to find out how good and or how bad they really are. And so that's the way that they uh, uh, came up with this report. I I think it's pretty interesting. I I think it's interesting on many levels. So I invited Ben to be here on the show, and uh, I'll talk with him about all of that, about the uh, study and about uh, the roads and and also about the technology uh, coming up in uh, just a little bit. But first, I, I received a note from a f- traffic friend and colleague that he's retiring. Uh, that's right, your traffic pal, Big Al. Do you remember back on episode 158 where I interviewed Big Al from Tucson, our t- Tucson station? Uh, I I put a link to the episode in the description of this show if you want to go back and listen to that one. Uh, But Al wrote to me saying that he's done. He's out. He's calling it quits. (laughs) He's retiring after 30-plus years of doing this TV thing. He says he's uh, hanging up the microphone or the whatever we're going to hang up here. in in, uh, Usually in radio, you say you're hanging up your uh, headphones, right? But in in TV, I guess he's, he's hanging up the camera. He's had enough. He's done. Um, because at some point, it doesn't matter what you've been doing. It doesn't matter if you've been doing anything. Whatever it is, you just get to the realization that it's basically time to stop. And, and I think that's what happened to uh, to Al. Um, we had a great conversation when I had him here on the show, and it was uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun. And I'm I'm sure he's gonna uh, enjoy his time off tremendously. I mean, look, how can he not? He's already living in Tucson. Um, so it's not like he has to go retire to Arizona. He's already there. Uh, I did tell him, though, if I didn't have kids, I would move down there in a split second and take his job. Um, well, you know what? Maybe I can take my kids. I don't know. It's it's hard for me to think about taking my kids away from their school and their friends and go to a different city, even though it happened to me when I was in high school where my, my parents moved after I finished ninth grade from Detroit to Atlanta and it was it was a huge change, obviously, for me. And looking back, it was actually I think it was a good experience. It, it forced me to meet new people, develop new relationships, see a new culture, a huge different culture, a different part of the country, going from uh, the north to the south, from uh, industrial to, uh, to to Atlanta. It was just it was a lot of it was obviously different, and, and overall, it worked out for me. 
Uh, I don't think my uh, kids might think the same thing. I don't know if, like, what my kids, you know, that's the thing. I think kids are pretty resilient. Maybe they would like it. Well, anyway, no, maybe I'll, I'll call up Scripps and, <laughs> and say, hey, look, if you, need, if you need someone to take over for Big Al in Tucson, uh, I'm your man. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll just see what happens. Uh, it also makes me think of the, uh, uh, you know what? It, it does make me think of that. So I have, Big Al is retired. When I talked to um, a couple other traffic people on my, you know, I was doing the, the kind of the block of traffic people that I, that I had interviewed from around the country. And I think now two or three of them have, uh, have either retired or left or are not doing traffic anymore. Uh, yes, I think maybe I'm bad luck. Maybe this is not a good thing to keep doing these interviews with traffic people. I I wanted to schedule one with a a guy here in town who has an interesting story and and a great accent. Um, but, uh, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm cursed. And, uh, these traffic people then come on, come on the show with me and then boom, they're, they're doing something else. Maybe I should stop doing that. Everybody can keep their job. Uh, and another traffic person is leaving uh, here from the Denver market. Emily Allen, she was working over at uh, Fox 31. Uh, the thing of it is for her, though, that I mentioned this, is that she just got there to the job. I mean, she, she was a reporter for many years over at Fox 31. She was promoted to the traffic anchor when uh, Sam Boyk left. Uh, she was a former tra- uh, Bronco. Sam was the former Bronco cheerleader who was doing traffic for a while, and she left to go to some mortgage company, and uh, that left the door open for Emily. And then Emily went over to out of reporting and to do the traffic thing. But she was doing it for like three months, and now she says she's getting out of the business. So there's another one. <laughs> it means there's going to be another new traffic person here in uh, Metro Denver. Crazy business. I I, I think between all. F- three stations or well yeah i guess the other three stations uh big stations there uh, those traffic people have been doing it a collective of maybe one year <laughs> compared to my 25 plus so anyway as for me i, I you know i just take it day to day unless uh uh you know the the scripts uh, upper muckety mucks want to you know say hey hey do you want to go to tucson or what they're going to make me do is they're going to probably do a, a, a split screen, green screen. They'll get, they're just going to be a green screen room, and they're going to say, all right, now you're going to not only do Denver, but then you're also going to do Tucson, and then you're going to do Tulsa, and then you're going to do Boise, and then you're going to do uh, <laughs> start listing off all our smaller markets where they don't have somebody currently, and then I'm, I'm eventually just going to be the traffic guy for all the script stations around the country, and I'm just going to be doing constant traffic updates for all these different cities. I'll just have to have all the people uh, feed me uh, hi- hi- the pronunciations for all the different road names. <laughs> and there you go. It, you know, stranger things have happened. Well, a couple episodes back, too, I interviewed uh, Professor Chris uh, Muldrow, and he's from the University of Colorado in Boulder, Boulder and, and we were talking about private space flights. It was right after the Jeff Bezos uh, space flight and, and really what what's next for the privatization of, of space flights. And one part of the conversation, we touched on the reaction from some that these billionaires are going to space and they should have been spending their billions of dollars on their employees instead of rockets. And and right after the Bezos launch uh, and, and in the last week or so, uh, I was reading that there were some in Congress who were actually talking about creating a per-passenger tax now on the price of these commercial space launch tickets 
and actually making a two-tiered excise tax on the launch companies. One tax rate for suborbital flights, so the low flights like they had uh, the last couple ones where they're just floating around for a couple of minutes, and a higher tax rate for orbital launches where you're really going out into space. And uh, similar to the airline passenger, you know, there's a ticket tax on your plane ticket, but in their mind, the, it's, you know, these, these actually, these, these passenger ticket taxes though, they're actually a user tax that actually pay for airport, uh, operations, grant, uh, air traffic control infrastructure, uh, not just taxes collected because somebody doesn't like somebody for having a lot of money and putting that money into the federal government general fund. The uh, airport taxes are actually going to airport infrastructure. So if you're going to be doing taxing on these launches, maybe that should go to suborbital or orbital space infrastructure and spaceport infrastructure. Because as commercial space grows, you're going to see more of these launches and recoveries and it's going to be more in conflict, really, with commercial airplanes and private aviation. And I mentioned this issue briefly in my interview with Chris, that the FAA has this uh, space data integrator. It's actually spe- uh, scheduled to begin soon. And, and basically what it does is feeds launch and recovery trajectory data from these space vehicles, from these launches, uh, to the FAA's ATC system, their command system. Uh, and and this infrastructure is expected to reduce the airspace closures uh, from an average of four hours to two hours every time they're going to do these launches to keep the private spacecraft away from the commercial space. I mean, obviously, that's inherently dangerous when you're flying a 747 around a rocket. Uh, That's not good. Uh, So maybe any of those taxes or that, that tax revenue should be going to this kind of infrastructure. Look, commercial passenger space travel, it's still in the experimental development stage. At some point, we're going to have to look beyond today and look at these passenger launch vehicles and uh, you know, and interestingly enough, when, when I asked Chris about the space suits they were wearing or the jumpsuits and they were just wearing a seatbelt, and there's got to be some more, wouldn't you think there's got to be some more safety standards that are are, are a part of this thing, maybe? Um, I'm sure they have to sign some kind of consent saying that, yeah, it, this is uh, experimental and it, it's obviously very dangerous and I'm not going to hold you accountable for, for uh, anything that goes wrong. Um, so uh, we'll see how all that goes. It, it was also announced that these people, all the people that have been in the in the couple of low-orbit uh, space flights, they are not real astronauts because they're not. <laughs> Finally. NASA said they actually need to go up there and do something to become an astronaut. That was my point. You can't just go up there, float around, unbuckle your seatbelt, and float around for three minutes and, and be declared an astronaut. That, that doesn't work that way. And it is the correct decision to be not an astronaut if you go up there and float around for a couple of minutes and then come back down. Boom. Go up. Do something. Stay up there for a little while. Get your pledge pin. And then come back to Earth. Yay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Back here on Earth this past week, I received a new report from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation and Roadbotics that looked at the condition of the roads in 20 major U.S. cities. And one of the interesting aspects of this study 
is the new way they collected the data. It was done using visual data from smartphone cameras that were mounted on a windshield of a vehicle, and then they used artificial intelligence to analyze all of those pictures. And I, I think the way they collected the data and, and the report in general is pretty interesting on, on a lot of levels. So I invited Roadbotics co-founder and CEO Ben Schmidt to come here on the show and talk all about it. Ben, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving a Crazy podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm so, excited. So we'll talk about the findings of the study and, of course, the technology portion of the study in just a bit. But first, I wanted to talk about Roadbotics. What, what does the company do and what, what's your goal? Sure, great question. So we are really focused on helping infrastructure is probably the easiest way to put it. So we've built a lot of technology around using machine vision, artificial intelligence to better understand what the physical world looks like, what the built environment looks like. The way that we practically do that is by helping governments, civil engineering firms, construction firms to basically document and understand what's going on in the world so that they can make better decisions about how to maintain that infrastructure. Interesting. Why why, um, why do you think that your company is able to do it better than maybe somebody else, or why can't the government do it themselves? Uh, well, that is a whole bunch of different pieces all combined together. One of the biggest things is that you know a lot of the machine vision technology that's been developed over the last few years is really just leaps and bounds better than what it used to be. Um, so what that's enabled is sort of, in areas where previously you'd have to rely on sort of someone going out to the road, going out to the sidewalk or whatever you're trying to understand um, and sitting there and trying to you know, meticulously document it and then moving on and doing that for hundreds or thousands of miles. Um, now we have sort of the technological capability that we can use machine vision, we can use artificial intelligence to do a lot of that automatically and take that person and now have them making decisions about what to do next, rather than spending their time having to meticulously inspect everything. Now, what that means, this is part of the kind of, you know, our infrastructure crisis where, you know, we need better infrastructure. Well, it's not that we build bad infrastructure, it's that maintaining infrastructure is incredibly difficult, right? It's enormous, it's expensive, um, and it has to be watched and monitored constantly. That's where a firm like ours, Robotics, comes in with these new technologies, these new AI advances, um, and can unlock kind of productivity uh, and efficiency gains for governments. So it's not that governments were bad at it previously. It's really just that the technology didn't exist to do it really well at the scale we're talking about. And it's obviously difficult to maintain roads in certain areas of the country. Uh, it's more of a challenge, let's say, in Detroit than it is in Phoenix, where the weather, but the Phoenix has their own weather issues. But it, it, I mean, in Colorado mountains, trying to take care of roads is way different than taking care of in, in Kansas. Uh, exactly. So, yeah, each area, every kind of you know environment we have across the country um, is unique. It creates its own unique challenges for road maintenance and things like that. Um, but one of the other, you know, careful considerations in there is that, you know, yes, in climates that have snow, you know, they're aware of that, right? They have snow plows, they have salting, they have all those kinds of equipment. Um, in areas that might not have that kind of weather, you might have, you know, increased rain or precipitation, or you might be enormously flat, so you get lots of flooding and things like that. So, you know, while it's, we tend to think, you know, I, I being a northerner, I'm from Pittsburgh, um, 
we tend to think, you know, oh, well, winter is what makes our roads bad. It's like, no, no, no. Just being in the environment is what makes our roads bad, right? <laughs> being roads in Pittsburgh makes your <laughs> <laughs> You know, as a Broncos fan, I have to, you know, I have to give you a little jab for that one. Uh, <laughs> we'll, get back, we'll get back to more of the technology here in just a second. But let's talk about this study. Why was this study conducted? Uh, what, do you think it was in part of or do you think it's part of the uh, preparation for all the talks that we've heard coming out of Washington about the spending for infrastructure from Congress? Uh, sure. I mean, that's certainly a big part of it since we've been having those kinds of infrastructure discussions for decades now. Um, but certainly, so, you know, my company, Robotics, we partnered with the U.S. Chamber uh, Foundation. So the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation portion. You know, the Chamber's really big focus here is on businesses and the economic development, right? So infrastructure, our entire economy runs on it, right? You get all your food, your clothing from some piece of infrastructure, the roads, the rails, you know, what have you. Um, it, it, it's basically the engine that makes it all go, right? Now, the challenge with that is that, of course, we all know infrastructure has lots of challenges, hence the kind of conversations we're seeing out of Washington about how do we make this better? Um, and, and that's really kind of how we came to this partnership of, you know, the shocking part of this report is not the actual rankings. It's the fact that we don't already have the rankings, right? So we talk a lot about how our infrastructure needs help. The interesting part is that without a technology like this, um, well, what part of the infrastructure needs what help, right? We just don't know that answer. Uh, so really kind of creating this data-driven environment is really what we wanted to sort of bring to light, right? That, Communities, governments, our decision-making processes, our policies, our politicians, you know, it would be better if we could have infrastructure conversations where we started with, and here's what the world looks like right now, and this is how we want to fund it, change it, maintain it. Um, and I think that's to us the really missing key component here. In order to get excellent infrastructure, right, to have like the number one best infrastructure in the entire world as a country, uh, that starts with understanding, well, how good are we at it right now, right? That's the first question we need to answer. And I think that's how we kind of arrived at this idea of, like, let's start that conversation. I'm speaking with Ben Schmidt. He's a co-founder and CEO of Roadbotics, talking about how good and bad our roads are, the infrastructure as well. Some interesting technology in just a bit on how they collected all this data. It, it makes me uh, think about uh, all this infrastructure as we move forward right now it is okay. It is nowhere near in a, a way, shape, or form that we need for autonomous vehicles, which they're doing a lot of testing there and, and research in, in Pittsburgh, where you are. And, and it seems like that is the next level of what we need the infrastructure to be, to be able to handle truck cars and trucks that will eventually be either semi or fully autonomous. Absolutely. No, you're, you're exactly spot on. I mean, as we start to advance more of these technologies, as cars start to get smarter and smarter, you know, naturally, we're making it harder on ourselves if our infrastructure is not in good condition. Um, you know, it's, it's just more cases that have to be adopted. But, it, you know, again, even before that, I think we would all appreciate fewer potholes, better infrastructure, better roads, better rail, um, all those kind of better walkability. You know, I think there's a lot, a lot of benefits to having better and better there. And, and as I said before, you know, it's not just sort of our individual commutes around this, right? It's also uh, trucking, transportation, logistics, right? That fuel for all the business, all the economic activity is moving on this infrastructure. 
Um, the better that is, the more opportunities that we can create for ourselves. The headline for the study that was sent to me, it reads, Workers are gearing up for their return to the office, but are America's roads ready for rush hour? So let me ask you, are they? Are America's roads ready for rush hour? Uh, so they're in pretty decent shape, I would have to say. Uh, and I, I, I think we, they can be better. They can always be better. Uh, but they're doing pretty good. And, and again, it's testament to a lot of the, the sort of governments around the world, the, the folks that work at these governments and sort of the dedication they have, again, in the absence of technology like this, how they're able to make good choices. Uh, I think that's kind of the positive side of the message. The, the negative side of the message is, you know, as I was alluding to before, now, we need to have this kind of understanding, this fundamental understanding of what the infrastructure looks like if we're going to make wise and informed decisions about how we want to spend our tax dollars um, to benefit the public by improving our infrastructure. That's really, I think, the big takeaway from this, this uh, study that we did. And, and before we look at some of those cities, it, it was interesting. I was reading on your blog that's on your website on your personal blog that that you no longer are going to an office that you're working remotely and you're not sure if you're ever going to go back to an office so there there are a lot of companies like that that won't be using the infrastructure like they were in uh, a year and a half ago oh exactly and that's another huge component here right is that uh, traffic patterns you know certainly covid changed them significantly um but they're always changing right the the new strip mall goes in, the new Walmart or Target or whatever, you know, changes traffic or the new on-ramp gets installed or they shut down a piece of road, right? Those things affect kind of that dynamism that you see on infrastructure. Um, and those have consequences to sort of how we should most effectively repair and maintain those roads. As I'm looking at this list where in the uh, story here, analyzing the cities, it has your your other major city there in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, as number one uh, for some of the best roads. And, and it's interesting because that is a pretty large population with pretty robust transit. Um, but why was Philadelphia coming in at number one? Uh, well, so I can answer that in two parts. Um, one is, you know, using the technology, using our road ratings, we basically calculated an average score for each one of these cities. Now, the piece I would say with this average score is we did 75 miles of kind of the downtown of each of the 20 cities. So 75 miles only. Most of the cities on this list probably have a thousand miles plus, right, of actual roads. So we only did a portion. We did the portion that tended to be the downtown. Most governments maintain those downtowns quite well, right? It's an area with heavy traffic, a lot of business environment, um, they usually tend to maintain it pretty well. So that said, that's how we created the ranking. That we rated all the roads on 75 miles, uh, and then we were able to basically establish that ranking. Now, to probably the more pertinent question of what you're getting at, which is why was Philadelphia the number one? Um, that's a much harder question, right? And I think it's actually what we wanted to prompt the discussion about uh, as a part of this study, which is, you know, what is it that Philadelphia is doing? You know, what kinds of maintenance activities, what kinds of procedures, um, what's their overall budget that they have compared to the size of their road network? And how are they able to best utilize that, you know, bag of tricks that they have uh, to achieve this kind of 
uh, road score that we were able to establish. And then importantly, okay, given that, how much of that can we translate to other governments uh, and create an environment in which we're actually able to share these best practices from one government to the next um, and bring all the cities scores up higher and higher and higher. And again, I sound like a broken record, but I keep coming back to it. That is really predicated on having data from which we can make those data-driven decisions. Um, and that's just the really key ingredient here is that I, we can't really answer why Philadelphia is number one because we, up until now, we haven't really had a way to compare Philadelphia's roads to Denver's roads uh, in an objective way to sort of ask that question. That's what I think is, is really gets us excited is that that's now the, you know, the next frontier of opportunity for us. Speaking of Denver, we are in the top five here. So you have Philadelphia at one, Jacksonville at two, tied for third is New York City, Denver, and then fifth is Nashville. Two of those cities in there, and maybe Jacksonville to a degree, Denver and Nashville are really growing fast. And we have changed our at least roadways to more bike lanes and uh, more transit options. And I think Nashville has done the exact same thing. Even New York City has has changed their roads. Has that led them to be more on the top of the list? Uh, it very well could have. I, I, I don't really know. I could speak to each one of those. But certainly we're seeing the exact same pattern sort of all across the world, which is you know, these multimodal kind of transportation opportunities. So looking at bikes, looking at new forms of walkability, um, right? The, all of those are really designed around sort of removing cars uh, and wheels from the roads. Um, that has a big effect on maintenance, right? So cars damage roads. That's, that's how that works. So the more we can take them off, the better. Um, that said, you know, this also creates new areas of complexity for managing the road system right because now we're managing multiple kinds of transportation so it, it's not like we have you know twice the budget now right for most of these governments it's we have the same budget but now we have to be even wiser about how are we going to spend those dollars to most effectively create kind of a transportation system that works for those citizens um that's what's really kind of again as i said that's the next sort of big leap that i think we're going to start to see here as more of these data collection uh, opportunities come into being um, as those become more frequent, right? So that, you know, five years from now, this is not a, a news story that, you know, we've released a ranking. It's just, yeah, we have the ranking for every city all the time, right? That's what we want to get to. Um, that will also lead to these kinds of policy questions around we've added bike lanes or we've added, you know, new uh, sidewalks for walkability and things. Um, what effect does that have? You know, we'd be able to quantify it. We'd be able to sort of compare it. That's what is, you know, that's what we need to get to. The lo the lowest five on the list of the 20 is uh, St. Paul at 16, Los Angeles, Oklahoma tied at 17, and then Phoenix and Detroit tied for uh, 19th technically because they would be 19th and 20th. And Detroit, it's interesting that they are – uh, uh, to me, I, I know I, I could think of why they are on the bottom. It's really the city over the last few years has grown, but in the last 25 or 30 years, it has been decimated. And, and really, the, the city has had very little tax revenue to do any upkeep. At one point, they were basically 
giving out abandoned homes. If you if you could just pay the taxes, we'll give you a house uh, just so somebody would take it over and they wouldn't just be uh, set on fire and and uh, the fire department would just let them burn down. So Detroit has had its own special issues. In general, when you're looking at some of these cities, not just the worst ones, but the best ones too, when you're looking at, at the infrastructure uh, with your data, are, are you studying more just the road conditions, but also the sidewalks and the bridges and the transit? Uh, so for this study, we looked only at the roads, right? We figured that would be sort of a, a nice way to do a comparison across cities. Can roads are you know a huge portion of budget and kind of the mind share, as you were saying before, around the conversation of infrastructure. Um, but we have the, the capability to do a lot of other kinds of infrastructure as you were alluding to. So even um, yeah, bridges, of course, uh, railways, uh, but even think about like all the things that are on the road, right, are around the roads. Um, so think like signage, guardrails, like safety systems. Um, again, all of those have the same character. They're equally as important as sort of the road conditions, you know, making sure the signage is there, the street lights are functional, the traffic lights are functional. Um, again, maintenance of infrastructure is an enormous challenge, right? Like I would challenge everyone to sort of the next time you're out on a street, just look around at all the stuff that has to be sort of there and functional and working um, in order for roads to operate or rail to operate or walking paths to operate. Um, it's a lot, right? And I think that's what's really interesting. The report focused enormously on roads, but you know, the, there's so many other opportunities for using these same technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, to better understand our built environment, our, our infrastructure. My guest is Ben Schmidt. He's the co-founder and CEO of Roadbotics. We're talking about how good and bad our roads are, our infrastructure is, as well as this interesting technology and how you collected that data. And that's where I want to go now. And we'll talk about the technology and how this data was gathered, because I I saw that uh, it, you use smartphone cameras to take, what, picture, just pictures or pictures and video of the road? Uh, so you're exactly right. So we use smartphones to collect video that we actually broke into images. So we created an image every 10 feet going down every single road, 75 miles, as I said, of each one of these cities, um, took the individual images. And then what we've done, and this is really the, the sort of like huge breakthrough technology, is inside of each one of those images. So you're looking at an image that's, you know, looks like a dash cam. So it's pointed out over the hood of the vehicle. Um, that machine learning can actually extract out all the things that are important or indicative about what's going on on the pavement. So pulling out things like cracks and potholes, uh, you know, things people really know about potholes, but then all these other kinds of varieties of, of cracks and deformations that mean something about pavement. Um, the AI pulls all that out. It knows what they sort of mean and what they're, um, you know, what how they affect kind of the lifespan of that road. And so it can generate a score. Uh, so on a one through five scale, um, that sort of point in time now uh, of that particular 10 foot section of pavement, um, we can stitch together into a map. That map is how we actually generated our entire uh, study report here. And it's how our government clients sort of make decisions, right? They can look at that map and then decide, you know, we're going to repair this road. We need to fill those potholes. We need to you know, deal with the cracks over here by doing crack sealing and things like that. 
but that's effectively how it works. And you mentioned a dash cam. I, I have a dash cam. I've had a dash cam for, for a lot of years. It, it is, uh, I recommend it to everybody, but why didn't you use a, a real dash cam and why'd you use a cell phone instead of uh, a dash cam? Because uh, personal experience, uh, taking video of different roads as I do for different uh, stories, I, I find that the dash cam has, has less shaky than a uh, window mounted uh, phone is. Uh, so it's a good question. One of the reasons was just purely accessibility, right? We, we have such great access around the world to, to smartphones. Um, and so that's kind of the simplest way. But that said, for the purposes of this study, we use smartphones. But for a lot of our kind of infrastructure management technology, we can actually use kind of any video or any imagery um, to conduct the same thing. So we could import in that data that you have there to kind of do a from a dash cam or you know, any sort of off-the-shelf camera that you can think of. Um, and, and again, it also, you know, again, we're talking roads, uh, but if you're thinking about, like, sidewalks or rail, right, you're mounting it in totally different ways. Um, so you just had random people taking the video for you? You just hired, hey, it's just, you know, hey, here's Steve that's taking video for us. Uh, in no, his, in no, well, no. To, so to make sure that we got those 75 miles that we wanted, uh, we actually, we had our own staff, the robotics team, um, flew out to all these cities, visited all the wonderful restaurants in each one, uh, and and collected. Hopefully, the data hopefully you had some Rocky Mountain nor'easters while you were here. Oh, I'm, I <laughs> I have no idea what they had, but I I'm sure they enjoyed themselves. Yeah, Rocky Mountain oysters are a uh, del- you know a special dish here. Just look yes, them up. Uh, yes, yeah. I heard. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> then what? Then when you took when you had all the those pictures and had all that data, then what? How did you get it into a computer and uh, then uh, use that data? Uh, good question. So all of the data, yeah, we collected on a smartphone. We upload it onto our cloud platform. Um, and from there, that's where we basically run it through that machine learning pipeline. Um, we do a bunch of like quality control on it to make sure that you know we're not getting erroneous answers. Uh, and then that's it. it. It comes together as a map. Interesting. Did, did, then you had to have someone... Uh, that, that you know, with heavy-duty computer knowledge, to then basically build a supercomputer program to analyze the data, and and do you probably had to do that from scratch, right? Uh, exactly. That's so we, you know, our our company's been doing this for probably about four and a half years now. That's really what you know we're extraordinarily good at is that you know programming computers and creating that process for going from here's the raw video data to um, here's the condition of that infrastructure. And how accurate is this a way to collect data? Uh, so as you can see, you know, we, well, first of all, we're better than sort of the, the average expert that would be out there, right? If you took a whole bunch of different um, pavement experts and had them do the same exact assessment, we would sort of be in the you know top tier uh, of that. We've done that kind of experiment. That's how we test our our own system very frequently. Um, the really exciting part is, you know, we've done this on probably about forty to 50,000 miles of roads uh, so far. So we have a lot of history under our belts in making sure of that. Um, and then, of course, we deliver all of our answers to uh, the most discerning of clients who are governments who have been doing <laughs> this for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, so not an easy crowd to please, but I think, you know, for all of our, our current clients, whenever they take a look at it, uh, yes, they, they immediately know sort of, this has got all the right character of it. Um, and I think that's, what's very exciting is this kind of technology is really pushing the boundary on, uh, what we used to think is possible 
for understanding infrastructure. Make, makes me think of the Jeopardy example of Watson versus Ken Jennings. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Having your AI yes. looking at roads compared to you know trained road engineers looking at, at roads. Exactly. We didn't have anything nearly with that production value, but it was similar. <laughs> uh, that's the voice of Ben Schmidt. He's a co-founder and CEO of Roadbotics. We're talking about all this different technology, how they collected data to look at uh, road infrastructure. What uh, else could your computer program, your computer system, this AI analyze? Could you use it for uh, highway conditions, congestion, other infrastructure issues that might be uh, a, a way to improve those systems as well? Oh, I think the, the, the possibilities are really limitless with this. So, you know, a lot of what we, you know, at least our, our particular company is focused a lot on is all the kind of stuff, the assets, right? So the physical things that are out there on roads. So um, naturally the pavement is one component of it, but sidewalks and curbs and trees, even uh, utility poles, transformers, right? All the things that you sort of see near to a roadway or near to a, a transportation hub. So same thing on like you know, a sidewalk, you'll see signage, you'll see, um, you know, tree roots and things like that. But also, you know, even in rail um, and sort of power utilities, kind of same characteristics. So where are all the things um, and what do they look like? You know, that's really where a lot of the technology is focused right now. Uh, but I think what you're alluding to is kind of the next part, which is, you know, and then let's think about traffic and congestion and how things are changing and sort of the dynamics of the infrastructure. Um, so like I said, limitless possibilities with what we can do with these kinds of technologies to help with infrastructure. I was reading as part of, I believe it was either this study or, or in one of your blog pieces about the AI applications, the, the, automated intelligence here applications really can include network level traffic volume estimations and then help with trip routing from certain places. But when you estimate traffic volume in that way, without actually looking at the actual traffic volume right now, they, they use these roadside uh, sensors that will uh, side fire radar or other sensors to, or, or uh, with transponders from let's say a toll uh, place that they'll, they'll, they're just monitoring the, the traffic flow. That's real-time traffic flow, but if you start using estimated traffic volume, then it, it can't quite keep up or can it with, let's say, an incident, a crash, a stall, a, a concert lets out, and all of a sudden a bunch of people hit the roadways. How does a computer account for those instances? Well, so maybe one of the ways to sort of drive out an answer to that is, is thinking about kind of... Um, it's almost like data fusion, right? So whereas we're looking very heavily on sort of what do things look like? Where are they? Where are they located, right? Which is, again, a huge problem for many uh, agencies, for many governments on sort of understanding that. Um, governments also have, as you're stating, uh, saying, a lot of other data, right? They have sort of uh, traffic flow data. They have CCTV camera data. Um, the, the real sort of innovations are going to come from integrating all of that into a single platform that allows them to kind of make decisions uh, as you're alluding to kind of as a cohesive whole right not sort of using sort of best guesses but rather like what does it look like right now you know where are the what is the sort of arrangement of the physical infrastructure right now um, and now what's the best action to take um, at the moment given all that information so that sensor fusion question is really going to be a lot of the defining characteristics of how well an agency or a government can 
can manage everything, right? From the actual infrastructure to the actual sort of like dynamics of that infrastructure, traffic and things like that. And and it really could maybe help them decide where to route traffic in the case of a road project that they have coming up. There is going to be some kind of a special event. Uh, Maybe a new development is going up and how traffic should be or could be routed into or out of these areas. So really this, this AI component could be a huge part of how we get around, especially outside of a densely urban core in the, in the suburbs or maybe even the rural areas in, in the not too distant future. Uh, 100% agreed. I, I think, you know, and even um, a few of our colleagues at CMU are working on just that kind of technology around sort of, you know, if we close this road, what's the optimal traffic flow to, you know, reduce travel time or improve travel times um, across different parts of the, the node, the network. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting activity. And again, it comes back to the same thing. If we have better data about what's going on, Um, we can start to run more informed, more intelligent simulations on how to, you know, best decide, best act. Um, But it all starts with that data, right? We've got to get good data. You know, I think the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. If If we can get really high quality data into these kinds of systems, into the hands of these government agencies and things like that, we'll be able to make better decisions using that information. Yeah, it's the same thing in weather forecasting. It's the the satellites are so much better now. The information going into these computer models are so much better now, and the forecasts are so much better now. Yep. Do you think this kind of technology, we talked about autonomy just a little while ago, could it or, or should it maybe even be included in future generations of autonomous vehicles? So if the car can identify, if it can take pictures like you were taking pictures every 10 feet of the conditions of the roadway, or it has that data in its database of what the conditions of the roadway are, then maybe it can predict or sense that there's a likely a higher likelihood of a pothole or a uh, issue of some sort, other road damage, and be ready to steer around it. Uh, exactly, because I, I think what you're getting at is basically imagine sort of all the the vehicles, the things that are on the road, all of the sensors that are already embedded in there, and that you know we'll st- keep adding more sensors onto those vehicles as we get further and further uh, down here. Um, what if all of that information were being used to sort of better understand what's happening, right? And create up continuously updating models of, of what's going on. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the quintessential example is a stop sign, right? So like, imagine we know there's a stop sign at this intersection, but all the vehicles driving down the street that stop at the stop sign um, are reporting back that, you know, yes, I did see the stop sign that's supposed to be there. And then all of a sudden, one of the vehicles reports, I didn't see the stop sign, right? That's the sort of like, alarm bell, red flag thing, right? Maybe the vehicle went straight through the intersection um, and never stopped, right? That sort of like change detection is only possible if you have a good, you know, base truth of what's going on. um, And then you're constantly updating that. But that would be like the ultimate version here of the stop signs now missing. But well, that could great. be that could be from some you know Yahoo running from the police, or it could be somebody driving a sixty-five uh, you know Mustang that doesn't that isn't connected to the whole network. Exactly, or, or and you know it could also be the the stop sign is not you know someone took it. Yeah, some or kid stole it, it, right? <laughs> a delivery van is parked in front of it, right? 
um, lots of different possibilities, but the neat part would be we would know about it, we'd be able to investigate it, we'd be able to remedy it quickly rather than waiting for the, you know, the citizen down the street to call in to the government and say, hey, I think there's supposed to be a stop sign here. So it's really about the sharing of data from the vehicle to the vehicle to other vehicles to uh, a government agency uh, to road networks that, that can actually take care of not only that issue, but any infrastructure issue and then make improvements or changes almost on the fly. Exactly. Yep. That's the future. It's fa- When do you think that's going to happen? I, I've always said that. Probably next were, week. No, <laughs> <laughs> that autonomy is really farther down the road than, than anybody wants to think. Everybody thought 50 years ago we would all be driving, flying, you know, have flying cars by now. That's not a reality because I, I don't want that, you know, that road hole that's driving right next to me uh, flying a car over me. So <laughs> I don't think exactly. we're ready for, for flying cars. I don't think we're ready for autonomous vehicles quite yet. What do you see as a, a, a outlier one year, five year, 10, 15, 20? Where, where do you see autonomous vehicles? Uh, well, so I have really no basis to judge on autonomous vehicles, but I think this data sharing paradigm that you know we're talking about here of sort of uh, vehicles today already have those, right? Lane departure cameras, they have forward and rear facing radars and LIDARs on them. Um, that data, I think in the next five years, almost surely, uh, will start being integrated into these kinds of like fusion, data fusion platforms um, that will better inform decision makers on that infrastructure. That I think is going to happen regardless of when autonomous vehicles sort of arrive on the scene. But this data fusion thing, much more accessible. Um, it, it's really a matter of sort of creating the pipes for it. Uh, it's not going to be a sort of new technology that needs to be developed or honed. Um, the hard part of that problem will be making sense of that volume of data um, so that we can actually make decisions with it. That's going to be the, the, the tough challenge for data fusion, but it will happen in inside of five years. I am speaking with Ben Schmidt, co-founder, CEO of Roadbotics. We're talking about how good and bad our roads are, the infrastructure is, how interesting this technology is that's coming to our cars and how we can share technology uh, between our cars and between governments and, and uh, get stuff done quickly. I, I, finally, I want to ask you, I, I was also reading on your, on your blog there about potholes. And you're very passionate about hot potholes, and you also said that, that that potholes aren't really as common as we might think, and it's all because of your data. Uh, exactly. So yes, I think um, this is this comes back to more to human nature than anything, which is really sampling bias, right? So if you got in your car right now and drove out to Starbucks and then came back, you know, you'd have just driven to Starbucks and came back. You wouldn't even think anything about the roads or the infrastructure or anything like that. If you try to drive out to Starbucks and you slam into a pothole and come back, you're going to tell everybody you know about your pothole, you're going to remember it forever, and you're going to tell like everybody for the next week about this massive pothole you ran into. It's, it's really just more a factor of human nature that we remember bad infrastructure, but the you know, main characteristic of infrastructure is largely you never pay attention to it unless something goes wrong. Um, so there's actually way fewer potholes than I think most people would imagine. Um, and even I think our report shows, I, I think most people that look through the data will see, you know, the roads are probably in slightly better condition than they, they would have thought about their own city. Uh, there are certainly areas that don't look great, uh, and you would remember if you had driven over them. Um, but it is a very funny quirk of sort of infrastructure. You know, if it works, nobody cares. 
Yeah, it says in your uh, blog here, every image that uh, you looked at, uh, over 3 million images, you found less than 2,800 potholes representing about 56, 5,700 miles of roadway. So they're, in in, in essence, one pothole for every two miles of roadway. Um, But in some cities, it it could be 20 potholes in, in one mile of roadway. In other cities, there could be no potholes in 20 miles of roadway. Exactly. And it's also, you know, which miles you pick, right? If you picked the worst miles of a city, there's going to be a lot of potholes in it, just yeah. by definition. And it's the same theory uh, of when I was working at, uh, at forever ago, back the Eddie Bauer theory is if you have a happy customer, they might tell a few people, but if you have an unhappy customer, <laughs> yes. they will tell a hundred people. So try to make them happy any way you can. Exactly. Yep. That's, that is the key. That's how infrastructure works. So I think, you know, Maybe for everyone's own sake or for sort of all of our sakes, the big thing with infrastructure is like, you know, the next time, maybe try to pay attention to all the roads that are in great shape, you know, and see if actually there's actually quite a lot. Yeah, I do that. I do that when I drive from Colorado to Kansas. As soon as you hit the state line, it is much better shape in Kansas than (laughs) it is here. Uh, And maybe it's the same for you in Pennsylvania. Uh, Well, I'd like to think Pennsylvania has some great roads, but certainly this, I mean, that's the big takeaway. I, I'm not delusional to think that, you know, there aren't potholes. Uh, there definitely are. There are problems. Yeah. Uh, and it really is a matter of, well, rather than sort of having a, a theoretical debate on, like, we need to spend more on our roads, I'd much rather have us debate on this road needs help. That one doesn't. We need that information. Yeah, exactly. Well, Ben, I, I really appreciate your time today. Ben Schmidt, co-founder and CEO of Robotics. Thank you so much for your expertise and uh, all the best luck for your uh, for your business in the future. And, and here's to happy infrastructure. Thank you very much. If you want to read that study or get some more information about Ben and Robotics, I put the links for all of that in the description of this show, including the uh, the actual study. Uh, robotics information, and also uh, Ben's blog, if you want to read some of those uh, blog posts that uh, I was (laughs) referencing uh, during our discussion there. Uh, And I think the technology portion of that interview was way more interesting than than actually what they found out. I, I, I do think technology will lead us to autonomous cars, flying cars, better commuting, but like I said in the interview, I don't want someone who can't put their phone down for 10 seconds to be flying in a car over me. That just seems like a bad idea. Unless the car is flying itself. That might be a little bit more palatable. Uh, you know what? And I still didn't get to our uh, story of the most stressful things uh, people find out about driving or the right-hand driving vehicle story or, um, uh, or this study that was sent to me about sounds in a tunnel making driving better in the tunnel. All right, maybe next time. Uh, maybe I won't schedule somebody next time and I can get all, get to all that stuff. So, well, until next time, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and, as always, happy motoring. <laughs>